echo for some reason. Okay, uh, is is the echo coming from uh, you or myself? I think it's coming from my phone. I think I'm, even oh, though I, I have the volume all the way down and all this stuff, it's still uh, it's still doing that. So mine's going to turn mine off. Yeah, that took care of it. Okay, we're good. Okay, excellent. So let's see here. Uh, okay, right on. Thank you, Alan. Um, let's see. So, uh, Intheo project. Do you mind uh, speaking about this project you were doing with William Pillow Brown uh, on the genoming of entheogens in Mexico? Am I am I right about that? Yeah. So the Entheo project is a project that is um, for doing uh, full genome sequencing of all psychoactive organisms. So the full genome is just all of the DNA. Um, so you can like decode all the genes and see exactly how it's working. And the goal is to get all of this data to be publicly available in GenBank. So anybody can download it and analyze it and uh, really learn how all of the entheogens work. Fascinating. And um, what are some, are there applications, particular applications that uh, are, are, are planned for uh, Utilizing this? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, understood, understood. And what are some of the psychoactive substances that you have been working with? We're starting with mushrooms. So it's the psilocybin mushrooms. I think we got some amanitas as well. Fantastic. Uh, what species of amanitas? So the amanitas, we have amanita section amanita. So there's about 50 species in that section. And those are all the amanita muscaria relatives. And so they uh, they have muscamol. And then there is uh, the amanita citrina group. Um, those produce a tryptamine called uh, bufotinine. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Uh, so this mushroom produces bufotinine. Yeah, and I don't know if bufotenine is really a drug that anyone would want to take or if it produces it in quantities that are would be useful, even if it was a desirable molecule. Uh, but it's kind of cool that uh, there's an amanita that produces a tryptamine. What species is that again? Uh, amanita citrina group. So citrina is the European species. And then uh, in North America, we have amanita lavendula. And there's actually three or four unnamed species going under the name Amanita lavendula. Okay. Fascinating. That's that's very interesting. Um, Jonathan Ott, he uh, he has some uh, in Pharmacotheon. He speaks of successful entheogenic experiments with bufotenine, um, and, and he doesn't he doesn't actually cite anything. Uh, and Hamilton Morris. Um, uh, uh, you you were in his episode Magic Mushrooms of Mexico. Uh, he he spoke with Jonathan on uh, and was able to conclude that you know through charring the seeds and I believe it was even by means of an enema and ensnuffulation uh, he was able to obtain desirable effects by me with the seeds of anadonanthra. I, I I think that was correct. I don't know the, the details there, but uh, yeah, that sounds correct. Right on. Uh, have you been hearing about the silamethoxin, this introduction of 5-MeO into the substrate of psilocybicobenzos? Um, yeah, I heard about it for the first time last week, and I'm not quite sure, uh, not quite sure what to think about it. You know, that's based on the work of Gartz, and a lot of the stuff that Gartz published wasn't very good. So, um, 
you know, he published this thing back in, oh, I want to say the late 80s or something, saying that you could 5-phosphorylate uh, five just about any tryptamine by putting it into the substrate. And as far as I know, it's never been reproduced. So um, nobody really knows if it works or not. And I'm not convinced that it, that it really would. Um, but I mean, if the salamethoxin thing actually worked, then um, I guess that's the first evidence. I haven't seen any like uh, HPLC or GCMS results for that. So um, I'm just gonna reserve judgment until I see some uh, some actual data. Certainly, uh, certainly. Do you, do you know of any other, uh, let's see, uh, additives to uh, supplements to uh, substrates that have yielded uh, excess, con increased concentrations or uh, other alkaloids? Um, if you put, if you use a dung-based substrate for Celestia cubensis mm -hmm. rather than the vermiculate core, um, you can get about 30% more of the active tryptamines. So, um, you know, I think just about with any plant or, uh, or fungus, the, you know, the compounds they produce do vary based on the substrate. Um, though it's generally, if you want more potent mushrooms, usually you just grow a, a more potent strain or more potent species. Understood. Um, have you been following the work of Oakland Hyphae over the, over the psilocybin cup these last few years? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm on like a weekly video call um, that one of those guys is on. And also um, I came out to the, the conference uh, this summer and spoke at their, uh, their psychedelic conference in Oakland. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, so I'm sure you saw their analysis of not only uh, qualitative analysis of the Harmala alkaloids, but also their quantitative analysis of psilocybin and psilocin. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, 3.8% for the uh, brain coral, I believe they called it. Are you familiar with this brain coral uh, mutation? Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of brain coral things. Um, and yeah, actually, one of the scientists from Oakland Hyphae came over to my house a few months ago and did DNA sequencing on uh, all the stuff from the cups so they could just kind of verify what species it is that they were testing. Um, but yeah, the brain corals are a mutation of cubensis, and they're um, kind of interesting. They just kind of like turned up in a tub and they never make mushrooms. They just kind of make these fan or coral shaped things. And um, Maybe if the mutation has happened a few times, or maybe it only happened once, and people are just releasing under different names, no one really knows. Um, mm. But I threw some in the microscope. Um, I had the one um, it was going by TW2, um, which is the mm. one that won the first psilocybin cup. And I had it on auger, and I scoped some of the mycelium, and I was seeing really interesting things that I had never seen in Psilocybe cubensis mycelium um, in the microscope. Uh, typically with cubensis, there's just one type of hyphae. And so you got lots mm. of strands of hyphae with some clamp connections. But in this one, I had I saw two types of hyphae. I saw normal cubensis hyphae. And I also saw these really wide hyphae that were full of vacuoles. And um, so I, I was really surprised to see that because I'd never seen anything like that in psilocybin mycelium before. And so I, um, I told my friend in uh, Amsterdam about it. He had a, a plate that I had sent him and it, uh, he saw the same thing when he scoped the mycelium. So um, I don't know what the significance of that is, but I imagine that it probably does have some significance um, for, 
for that mutation. I see. What, what was it that you saw on it? Uh, that the Amsterdam. So it's two types of mycelium. There was the regular yes. thin Psilocybe cubensis mycelium, and then there was really wide Psilocybe cubensis mycelium mm. that had it was full of vacuoles. So it's like these, all these little like round structures inside of the mycelium. Um, I see. Yeah, you know, I scope a lot of Psilocybe mycelium. I hadn't seen anything like that. I actually posted it um, in a bunch of Facebook groups uh, a few months back. Um, so I can pull that stuff up and, um, or I can link you to those photos if you want to uh, check them out. Oh, I would greatly appreciate that. Is this uh, thin and thick uh, dichotomy, is, does that correspond to rhizomorphic and tomentose? I don't think so. Okay, okay, I see. Understood. Gonna say. Are you familiar? I'm sure you're familiar, without a doubt. Uh, Panolius synctilis. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm sure you see a lot of it in the Bay Area. Yeah, you know, in, in mushrooms demystified, David Arora writes that it's the most common psilocybin mushroom uh, in California, um, and that's certainly true. Like in late spring. Okay. I see. I'm uh, here in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I've uh, I found a lot of it in late spring as well as uh, uh, late spring, early summer, as well as late summer when the rains pick up as well. Um, yeah, have you do you have you done much cultivation uh, yourself of uh, fruiting? No, I don't grow mushrooms. I only find them outside. I see. Understood. Right on. Uh, have you observed any uh, patterns as far as the distribution and uh, habitat of uh, Pinoli synctilis? Um, I, I imagine, my conception is, is that it may be the, the most, uh, in this conjecture, I'm sure at this point, but the most widely distributed uh, nationally, potentially globally. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, on that claim? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I see it when the temperatures start to warm up. So, um, you know, here in California, we have the cold rainy winters and then like around April and May, it's really common, uh, both in lawns and in horse manure. So gardens mm. fertilized with manure are a really common habitat for it. Um, it really likes to be warm. So it gets real common down south, like Los Angeles, San Diego area, especially if there's some spring rains. Um, but uh, also it seems like there's a few different species going under that name. And um, another interesting thing about it is that it makes sclerotia on agar. So kind of like the Psilocybe campanensis or Mexicana wood, it makes these blue stones. I see, interesting. Um, it was the, the uh, Psilocybe campanensis, uh, was, was that discovered by Pollock? Was that first documented by um, Stephen Pollock? Yeah, it was. Um, when I look up stuff like this, I look it up on Index Fungorum. Um, so if I just, um, let me see, so yeah, it was published by Guzman and Pollock, and I think okay. uh, Gary Linkoff was there when he discovered it too, so um, named after Tampa, Florida. I see, I see. Uh, I, I mention it because uh, the sclerotia producing, um, yeah, the sclerotia producing nature, do you know if uh, Panolius synctilis produces active sclerotia? Yeah, it is. It's just like this really kind of like blue P-shaped pebble things. I see. I see. 
uh, is the potency known by chance? Do you know if there's been any analysis? Uh, I don't of think that? anyone's ever tested it. Interesting. Very interesting. Hmm. Do you uh, see any developments in uh, psilocybin, the psilocybin space? Foreseeing oh, developments? So many. Um, you know, the psilocybin space is pretty huge as far as, you know, like um, I'm mostly into the taxonomy and, oh, yes. um, and that sort of thing. Um, but there's lots of developments so with taxonomy and also lots of developments with um, on the legal front. Certainly. Uh, do you see any uh, distinctions ta taxonomically coming uh, coming forth in recent years? Yeah, there's um there's like three or four new species of psilocybe that I have uh, here in my lab that I'm working on. And um, one of the more interesting ones is called psilocybe ceruliariza. Um, that's the name I'm oh. going to publish it under. And that one um, turned up in Ohio and in Iowa, and then more recently in Indiana and in Pennsylvania. And so um, it fruits really late in the year. In fact, it's, it's starting to get really common right now. Um, just today, there was like three different people found it in Ohio, and it's, it's all over Pennsylvania right now, too. Uh, I think it was kind of hiding under the name Psilocybe ovoidio cystidiata, so people just thought they were finding fall ovoids. Um, but it's actually a lot closer to Psilocybe cervica and Psilocybe azticorum. And so I chose the name Cerulea Riza because it has a very rhizomorphic stem base. And then when you put it on agar, um, the growth is extremely rhizomorphic and very blue. So it makes them really beautiful. Uh, blue rhizomorphs on auger. Maybe you've seen the, those photos that I posted last year. I, I don't think I did. Uh, that's beautiful. Uh, what, what is the substrate? What is, what is it uh, typically grow out of? Uh, typically wood chip landscaping. Okay. Okay. So so like uh, ovoid cystidiana. I see. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wood lover. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, was there a species in New Mexico uh, a few years back that you documented? Yeah, so the um, the one in New Mexico is Psilocybe mescaleroensis, and that oh, grows yeah. at really high elevations in the sky islands of New Mexico. Was that a new species or was it previously documented? Um, that's a really good question. Um, the people who discovered it, I mean, it was... Um, the person who published it was Gaston Guzman, and he oh. thought it was a new species distinguished um, from Psilocybe hopii by the Pleurocystidia and um, and the annulus on the stem. Mm -hmm. But I'm starting to think that actually it was previously, um, I'm starting to think that Psilocybe hopii is a synonym, although Mescaleroensis was published before hopii. So that means that if it's true that these are actually synonyms, then um, Mescaleroensis would take priority. So either way, yeah, definitely a, a new species uh, in New Mexico. I see. Interesting. Um, do you believe that Psilocybe mexicana uh, could be found within the United States? This, this is a strange question. Um, but do you think Psilocybe mexicana could be found north of uh, the border? No, I don't think so. Um, okay. You know, uh, north of the border version is Tampanensis, the sister species. That would be, that would be Tampanensis. Uh, I find Mexicana pretty commonly, uh, like Jalisco, Veracruz, Oaxaca. Um, 
Okay. But it's not really, it doesn't really go up into northern Mexico very much. It kind of like likes the really humid stuff, um, you know, a cloud forest type habitat. And so um, when you get into northern Mexico, it gets a, a lot drier. And um, so I think for that reason, it's that desert is keeping it from coming to, uh, to the United States. Uh, the only Mexican psilocybe that is currently known from the United States is psilocybe cerulescens. Um, so that oh. was, one was discovered in Alabama in 1923. And uh, when they discovered it, they didn't realize it was hallucinogenic, but they did note the blue staining. So that's why they called it cerulescens. Um, and then when they discovered all the magic mushrooms in Mexico, psilocybe uh, cerulescens was one of the more common ones uh, that occurs in landslides in southern Mexico. And then Paul Stamets noticed that in, uh, in the, the Atlanta area, Atlanta, Georgia, in, like two, uh, in oh, wow. 1996. And he thought it was a new species. So he named it after his friend, Andrew Weil. Uh, but it turns mm. out he was wrong. And it was actually just several lessons he was finding. I see. Interesting. Do you... Um... Are you familiar with this article? It was uh, from a, a graduate of Yale. It was the early early nineteen teens. Uh, it was you know naturally pre uh, determination of or discovery of psilocybin. You know pre Heim, uh, pre Wilson. Uh, it was by A. E. Verrill, and it was titled uh, "Recent Case of Mushroom Intoxication." Uh, are you familiar with this article by chance? Oh, I don't think I've read the article. Uh, but where did the intoxication happen? Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, where yeah. in the world was that? Oh, where, where in the world? This was in New England, I believe. Um, oh, in yeah, New so England. It, yeah, uh, they the species I believe they attributed was Panolius papilonaceus or uh, uh, okay, sphincterus. Um, Stamets, yeah. I believe it was in his uh, psilocybin mushrooms of the world. I think he attributed he he said it was more than likely synctulus or, or subaltiatus as was i believe like, yeah um, is that uh, i think synctulus is the older name that takes priority over subaltiatus um okay. but yeah there's like seven different species that people call pineolus papilinaceus and okay. uh, most of those are not hallucinogenic though i think julian matucci noticed some blue staining ones in florida um so he should have some sequence data for that soon and we can kind of figure out what he was seeing there uh, but in general, Pineolus papilinaceus group is not active, and that um, so I think it's real likely that it was Pineolus synctulus um, that they were finding. And the other really common hallucinogenic mushrooms in New England are the Gymnopilus subspectabilis and Gymnopilus luteus. Though those are a lot bigger, you wouldn't mistake it for Pineolus. I see. Understood. Um... Yeah, yeah, the Pinolius, the psychoactive uh, Pinolius papilonaceus, uh, I, I believe he also, um, Schultes, in um, his work in the 30s in Mexico that, that uh, Wasson naturally followed, uh, the Wassons did, um, he also spoke of uh, Pinolius papilonaceus being one of the active species, um, which uh, I questioned naturally, and, but you mentioning that there's several species uh, and blue ones, uh, blue staining ones being found in, in Florida, was it? Yeah, you know, Pineolis needs a whole lot of work. Um, but okay. yeah, I saw I the pictures. Um, there was definitely, it looked like Pineolis papilinaceus had, had blue, blue staining. So it'll be interesting to see what Julian finds um, with regards to that one. 
I told them to get lots of good pictures and save more dried collections, and we'll see if that's another one that needs to be named. Fascinating. Excellent. Uh, has Pinoleus cinctalis, do you know, uh, ever gone through commercial cultivation uh, in, in uh, like Amsterdam per se? Uh, yeah, they used to grow it in Amsterdam Okay. Uh, before they banned uh, the mushrooms in Amsterdam. Um, I see. So yeah, it was it was cultivated commercially over there. Interesting, interesting. And, and so I imagine it had a desirable yield, you know, desirable qualities as far as, uh, you know, comparable to Cubensis perhaps. Yeah, it's, it's really, really easy to that? grow. Uh, I think uh, some of the strains or maybe species are about the same potency as uh, Cubensis, um, gram per gram. And then other ones um, kind of are found out in lawns and they're different mm -hmm. species and they're about half as potent. Okay, I see. So, so the, uh, those with an affinity towards uh, dung are a, a different species uh, than those with an affinity towards lawns. Um, I would say that the, there's several species that grow in dung and there's several species that grow in lawns and there is some overlap there. Um, okay. I, I've gotten the same DNA sequence from some that were found in, uh, it was found in a lawn in Golden Gate Park uh, as, I, as I got from, uh, from a garden that had dung in it. So, um, yeah, there's there's definitely some overlap, but there's probably some that only occur in dung and others that only occur in lawns. Understood. Uh, are there any macroscopic uh, features that that can be easily noted uh, between them? That's kind of an open question. Um, one thing I'm doing now is just getting more collections of this and sequencing se sequencing them all. Um, and I sequence a barcode gene called the ITS, and that allows me to see which collections are the same and which ones are different. And once I have a whole bunch of sequences and I can I know which ones are the same, then um, then I can kind of like look at all the photos of all of them and see macroscopic differences. But in general, the the one I call cinculus in the strict sense um, has a reddish stem, and um, and you know jet black gills, kind of a hemispherical. Uh, cat, and um, and then there's some other ones like Pineolus olivaceus and Pineolus famicola. Mm -hmm. um, those tend to have white stems. Um, but I think Kyle Cannon, he's in Ohio. Well, actually, he's in my living room right now, but he lives in Ohio. And I think he said that he got a sequence match from one that had a white stem uh, that matched the red stem Pineolus cinculus. So maybe the stem color is not. <laughs> Um, is not as important as we used to think it is, but you know, like I said, Peniolis needs a ton of work, uh, taxonomic work. Um, the whole genus is a big mess, and okay. in order to untangle it, we're going to have to designate epitypes for a whole, whole bunch of species. Um, you know, right now there's a lot of sequence data available, but nobody really knows which names should get applied to which sequences, and so careful microscopy can help. A little bit with that, but really, uh, some sequenced epitypes will have to be designated before any serious work can be done in that genus. Understood. Understood. Uh, I imagine this is probably tied into uh, these open-ended questions, but uh, you know, the the rare blooming of Pinolia cinctalis. Um, I, I've read an, one analysis, I believe it was, uh, suggesting little to no silicin found within the uh, the collections. Uh, is there 
some kind of distinction that you believe could be made between these species and uh, the blueing, the rare blueing? Um, well, that's a little bit of a complicated question, um, but you know, one of the world experts in the chemistry of psilocybin is Dirk Hoffminster. Um, he okay. lives in a lab in Jena, Germany. And um, he said on a podcast that came out about six months ago, um, it was really good. It was the Mind and Matter podcast. Um, he said that he didn't think um, psilocybin mushrooms really uh, makes psilocin at all until they get damaged. So um, they make psilocybin that has the, uh, you know, the phosphorus on it and it's a much more stable molecule. And then as soon as you damage them, then they quickly dephosphorylate the psilocybin into psilocin. And then some other enzymes quickly polymerize the psilocin into these long blue polymers. Um, so that's where the bluing comes from. So if you're not seeing very much bluing, um, that is probably either uh, a lack, uh, not very much of the enzyme that uh, dephosphorylates the psilocybin into psilocin, or not very much of the enzyme that polymerizes the psilocin. I see, understood. Uh, is there uh, something of that nature that you can attribute to uh, Penelocinculus, or is that unknown at this juncture? Oh, it's probably pretty unknown. Um, okay. But I do notice that those things don't blue very much. Um, like if I find one or two, I usually don't see any blue. If I have a pile of a hundred of them, you know, I'll see blue on the stem bases of a few of them, and usually a little, a little bit of blue on the caps of a couple of them. Uh, but for the most part, they're they're pretty non-bluing. Understood. Understood. Speaking of uh, bluing, uh, the uh, belays, the psychoactive belays. Uh, are you are you familiar with this phenomenon? Um, I think you're talking about the Zhao Ren Ren. So it's the psychoactive bullies from China and New Guinea. Yes, exactly. Um, those of New Guinea ha are, are antiquated, am I right? They, it does not happen there anymore? Uh, that seems unlikely. Um, I think they do. Uh, I think it, they, they still occur there. Um, in fact, I was just talking to Bart Buick um, last week and he said he went to New Guinea to the, to the village where they published about this and he talked to the people that were referenced in the original paper and got samples of these bullets and sequenced them. Um, so okay. I think he probably has a much better idea than anyone else uh, what's going on. But um, he also mentioned that there's several different teams all over the world right now that are studying these uh, these bluing bullets. Uh, one of them is working um, in Utah with uh, Bryn Dentinger. Um, and so, all, yeah, all of a sudden people are interested in these, um, these, these bolites that are hallucinogenic. Um, I think maybe it only works if they're raw. So maybe the compound is in fact too stable. And, you know, they say that you would see hallucinations like thousands of miniature marching people. Um, so, yeah, it would be interesting when people are able to try that more and see. Uh, but you know, most of these bullets are at the mycorrhizal, which means they can't be cultivated indoors. So it's very likely that these mushrooms will have to be harvested from the wild. Oh, okay. Um, did you, by chance, attend the uh, ethnopharmacologic search uh, for psychoactive drugs, uh, 55, this, uh, this year or this last year? Uh, no, I, I don't think I heard about that. Okay, uh, there was a presentation on the 
the hallucinogen, the Jia Ren Ren Bolays, and they, they, they had a nice presentation, but they did have quite a bit of mystery regarding what the actual species was. Uh, they, they presented some, some data, which it sounds like is, is going to be uh, expired pretty soon here by these researchers. Um, and, and different genomes um, were attributed to be the, different, the same species uh, and, and just very uh, a lack of conclusion regarding what, which bole uh, or if any bole is actually psychoactive, despite the reports from uh, Papua New Guinea and, and China. Um, yeah, I mean, I find the, the reports pretty compelling. I think, uh, I think it's a real thing. Um, I think right now, Bart Buick is the only person in the world who knows which bullies they are. It's very likely they don't have scientific names yet, uh, but you know he has barcode data. So like if it turns up again, he'd be able to say like, oh yeah, this is the same thing or closely related. And it's you know it's pretty likely there's a few different species that have those kind of chemicals in them, and they're all kind of closely related. See, do you uh, suspect a particular class, a chemical class, uh, could be the culprit? No, I have no idea with the compounds with I the see. plant. And that's going to make the chemical analysis really difficult because if you don't know what you're looking for, um, trying to you know find a molecule when you don't know uh, what it is, is extremely difficult, even with uh, very, very advanced uh, analytical chemistry techniques. Um, certainly it's possible, um, but um, you know, it would take like a team of graduate students uh, to, to figure something like that out. Understood. Do you foresee, uh, you know, Salaspi cubensis has always been the the most widely cultivated, um, most sought after by cultivators, but generally cultivated. Uh, do you foresee any other species being, um, and, and and perhaps I'm wrong in that claim. Correct me if I'm wrong. But no, no, that's absolutely correct. Okay, I see. Um, thank you. Uh, do you see any other species in the future, uh, either either newly documented species or older species, perhaps overlooked, um, rising in popularity as we enter a, a, uh, a regulated legal market here in the United States? Well, it's um, <clears throat> a little bit of a complicated question, and there's a few factors there. Um, but Psilocybe cubensis is super easy to cultivate, and it also has a very fast cultivation cycle. So um, so it'll kind of like for that reason it's like the most common one on the block uh but i think um you know it's very likely that different species have different psychoactive effects and i say very likely because it's really hard to be sure even the same batch of mushrooms will give you a different trip on different days um but um you know, there's about a dozen different tryptamine alkaloids in psilocybin mushrooms that are present at different levels in, in different species. Um, and then there's also beta-carbolines, uh, which are MAO inhibitors that are also present in psilocybin mushrooms. And if those are present in high enough quantities, that, that would definitely modify the effects as well. So, um, so it's very, you know, um, it's very likely that people will want to, you know, seek, seek out some of these more rare species and uh, almost all psilocybes can be grown. Um, generally, they just, uh, some of these other ones, like psilocybes apothecorum or psilocybes serolescens, they have a much longer uh, cultivation cycle. So instead of like two or three months, it's like five or six months uh, to be able to fruit it. So they probably won't be available in the black market unless there's some huge demand. But um, 
you know, with like psilocybin zapticorum, it's it's really strong. It's the, the strongest psilocybin mushroom that's been found in the wild. And it uh, seems to consistently bother people's stomachs a lot less than psilocybin cubensis does. So um, this has a really strong visual effects as well. So I think um, that's definitely one of the more desirable ones. And I think as more people learn about those, then those will, uh, those will start getting a lot more popular. See, um, I could be wrong, but I, I think Stamets may have claimed that Slosby Beocystis does uh, not grow well at all indoors. Uh, are you familiar with any cultivation of uh, Slosby Beocystis? Uh, no, I haven't seen people trying that one very much. I mean, they do try it, they usually try it outdoors. Uh, but Slosby Beocystis is closely related to Slosby Simmonsiana, the Liberty Cap, and those are typically fruited outdoors as well. Um, you know, a lot of those wood-loving species um, are pretty difficult to fruit indoors. A few people have done it kind of like in a cold basement, um, but, you know, it takes a long time and the yields aren't very mm -hmm. good. So some of them are definitely uh, easier to grow just uh, outside in a garden. Understood. Um, and Zapotecorum, that was the species with the highest concentrations that you mentioned? Yeah, that one um, tested about 3% alkaloids, whereas the second strongest one was um, psilocybe agitorescens uh, at about 2%. Yeah, at about 2 mm -hmm. Okay, I see. Uh, and Zapotecorum, uh, it, you may have mentioned, has it been cultivated indoors? Yeah, uh, a bunch of people have grown that indoors now. Um, it's one of the largest psilocybin mushrooms. Like in the wild, I found it like up to a foot tall. And it has this really cool shaggy stem, uh, really strong blue staining. So it's a really cool looking species. And it's usually found in landslides in Southern Mexico and Central America and South America. Um, so, you know, um, it's pretty dangerous mushroom hunting to find these things because, you know, the landslides are extremely unstable. And then the rains come in about 3 p.m. every day in those cloud forests. and um, they're typically found at the bottom of the landslide near the river. So um, they, they're definitely uh, fun to hunt. Nice. Um, do they grow in uh, the pulp of sugarcane like uh, chiralescence? Have, has that been recorded as well? I haven't seen them in the substrate, but uh, my okay. friend in Guadalajara grew some indoors, just in, in a micro bag using sugarcane bagasse. And um, he had a really beautiful flush. So um, yeah, I, th I think any psilocybe would grow just fine on, on sugarcane pulp. Wonderful. Uh, and Zapotecorum, I would only, I can only imagine that it is utilized by the, the Zapotecs. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, it was named after the Zapotecs. Um, I think they found it originally in Zapotec territory. Um, sort of near San Augustine, Maxicha, um, which was up in the, in the mountains of Oaxaca and Sierra Sur. Um, but there is, uh, there's five different mountain ranges in Oaxaca that uh, have psilocybin mushrooms. And I think the natives in all five of those mountain ranges have been using them for thousands of years. Do you, uh, I, I recall Wasson, uh, he, he spoke of, uh, this connection to the Aztecs, right? And their utilization of uh, psilocybin mushrooms. 
um, that was recorded by the Spanish and that they served cacao prior, you know, his first ceremony with Maria Sabina. Um, he spoke of cacao being served prior, but there was still this question when he realized that there was a connection between the two rites uh, as to if it, if it came from Oaxaca uh, or it came from the Aztecs to Oaxaca uh, or exactly like where the, the origin of this was. Do you, uh, is there any compelling data that you know of to suggest uh, where the origin in uh, Mesoamerica? Oh, it happened so long ago that it's kind of hard to tell. Um, but I think, um, you know, Oaxaca is definitely the place that has the most history of use. Uh, and then possibly in central Mexico as well, like where the Salasabi Aztecorum grows. Um, it grows on the tops of the volcanoes that surround Mexico City at real high elevation. And, um, and you know, Mexico had you know, a lot of different indigenous groups. There's uh, 170 different indigenous languages um, in Mexico. And so, um, you know, they don't have a whole lot of written history. So it can be kind of hard to, to figure out uh, a, lot, a lot of things about those cultures. I see. Um, do you have any thoughts on the Wasson and Ruck hypothesis regarding uh, the Eleusinian mysteries? Uh, I've read some of that stuff, and I think it was so long ago that I'd be surprised if anyone really figures it out. Um, but it seems to me it could have been, you know, psilocybin concoction. It could have been an ergot type concoction. Uh, maybe one of those ergot-like alkaloids that doesn't have the vasoconstricting uh, properties, um, like some of the paspalum species will make the LSA and other you know, lysergic acid things, but they don't have the dangerous vasoconstriction that uh, the ergot does. So it could have been something like that, or maybe they were just using ergot and figured out a way to, uh, to like destroy those molecules or purify it a little bit so it didn't cause all the gangrene. Periglandula, are you familiar with that, that genus? Do you yeah, know so the periglandulas are the endophytic fungi inside of the morning glories that make the LSA. Yes, uh, what, what, do you, what do you know about them? I, I don't know uh, much more than that, I, I'm curious. Uh, I don't know much more than that, but I can, I can add that they do not grow well in agar. So they're growing like okay. inside of morning glory leaves, and so if you take a morning glory leaf and do a next generation sequencing run on it, you'll get a list of all the fungi that are growing inside and the paraglandule will be in there. But if you take that leaf and throw it on a Petri dish, um, it will not grow. It's like the fungus doesn't, doesn't like to grow in agar. Uh, the other thing is that paraglandula has been whole genome sequenced and that data is available in GenBank. So um, anybody who wanted to could download that genome and analyze the genes that are making the LSA and figure out exactly how all those work. And uh, they could also synthesize those genes and put them into uh, like some sort of uh, bacteria or yeast uh, to you know, genetically modify them to, to produce those, uh, those chemicals and produce a whole lot um, very inexpensively. Interesting. Do you, uh, this question may be, uh... A bit tall at this juncture. I uh, maybe no answer at all. Do you see the uh, paraglandula lysergamides or the ergot lysergamides, the, the, the ergot alkaloids, uh, being utilized therapeutically uh, as natural therapeutics, not uh, semi synthetic derivatives like uh, LSD? Uh, do you see that 
rising in popularity in this uh, legal regulated models uh, in the United States or decriminalized models. Seems a little bit unlikely because, you know, the, the seeds that contain LSA have been very available for a long time. And, you know, anybody can just order the morning glory seeds um, off the internet and get LSA legally. Well, it's not quite legal because LSA is a scheduled substance, but the seeds themselves are legal. Uh, in any case, um, you know, they've been doing that for a long time. Time. It never really got very popular. Um, a lot of people say it's kind of a sleepy feeling. So a lot of times, you know, people eat morning glory seeds or you know, other LSA-containing things, and they they get real tired when they trip. Um, so that, that might be one reason that it probably won't get super popular. Understood. Uh, are there any distinctions that you, uh, you know, I, I anecdotally, you know, you you hear that there are different. Uh, even within one species, Solosomy cubensis, there are the more visual mushrooms uh, and there are the more, you know, body oriented mushrooms, right? Um, do you find any distinctions between species uh, that you know of where you- It's really hard to say. You know, people that have eaten a lot of species generally say that, yes, the different species um, have different effects and that could be due to the different alkaloids. Uh, but it's also possible that the, the various alkaloids are really just prodrugs of psilocin and don't really have an effect. Um, though even prodrugs can modify the effect uh, of the drug that they're converted into in the body, but they don't all do that. So, um, you know, there's not really a lot of consistent differences, but, you know, every drug affects every person differently as well. So um, it's, it's a huge question that a lot of people are trying to answer, and I'm not sure if anyone is getting uh, anywhere close to uh, an actual answer on that. This is uh, more or less an extension of the same question, and I imagine uh, the answer may be the same. Um, regarding the beta carbolines, uh, it's been postulated that they might have uh, caused a change in effect, that they might have a significant impact. And then it also has been postulated that they're not present within large enough concentrations. Um, and you know the same about like the bio system, uh, the norbio system. Um, what are your? Do you have any uh, thoughts on that? Do you have any evidence to, to suggest uh, otherwise that there there could be a significant impact? You know, perhaps a, a, a greater duration or intensity of effect or uh, modulation like like a, a more body effect with a the stoning effect of the the harmalas uh, the, the beta carbolines. Uh, you, so those beta carbolines, um, yeah. I think there might be like six of them or so in, um, in psilocybin mushrooms. It was discovered not very long ago, like maybe three years ago by Felix Bly and his team in Vienna, Germany. And um, he only tested two species for beta carbolines. Um, he tested psilocybin cubensis and psilocybin tamponensis. Um, he thought it was Mexicana that he was testing, but sequence analysis um, turned, uh, indicated there was actually tamponensis that he tested. Uh, but in any case, he didn't find very much in the fruit bodies, but he did find uh, a lot more in the mycelium. And then the sclerotia, uh, basically balls of mycelium, so those had a lot more. Uh, but he only, he only tested those two species, and I think it's very likely that other species have much higher concentrations of that. Um, it's possible you might be able to see the beta carbolines in mushrooms using an ultraviolet light, 
because these beta carbolines are very fluorescent, so you shine ultraviolet light on them and they, um, they give you a blue light back. So either by shining black lights on a mushroom or on an aqueous extract of mushroom, um, you can kind of visualize the, the beta carbolines that are, in, that are in the mushroom. And I think it's, um, you know, like when I shine uh, a black light on uh, things in the Zapatocorum group, like Psilocybe subtropicalis, um, I have a really beautiful photo of Psilocybe subtropicalis fluorescing in ultraviolet. And that could be the beta carbolines that are fluorescing, but it doesn't matter fluorescing molecules, so could it be something else. Um, and biocystin definitely needs more research. Um, I think Paul Stamis tried 10 milligrams and definitely noticed something. I think it's also a prodrug for psilocin. So you definitely have psilocin effects from it, but you might have some other effects as well. And then there's a whole bunch more tryptamines that are even less well-known, um, like the norbiocystin, aruginacin, norcellucin and a whole bunch of other ones. A lot of them are kind of like intermediate steps in the psilocybin production pathway. And, um, I see. and so, yeah, nobody knows what if these things have different effects or if you combine these molecules, if they have different effects or how they interact with the various beta carbolines in mushrooms. Um, but I would say that it's very much, it's much more likely that mushrooms that are not closely related to Psilocybe cubensis would have much different effects than different strains of Psilocybe cubensis. Because, um, you know, they're all real closely related, all the same species. So, um, you know, the alkaloids they produce are much more likely to be very similar. And then things that are very distantly related, um, like in Psilocybe, you would have the cyanescence group um, or the semiloxiata group. Those are not very closely related to cubensis, so they're much more likely to have different um, different uh, genes in the psilocybin gene cluster doing different things, um, you know, making different molecules and different ratios of molecules. Um, and then you have you know, six other genera of mushrooms that also produce psilocybin. So you have the Plutaeus and the Gallerina, Gymnopilus, Foliotina, Inosibi. And um, the Inosibis are interesting because it's a completely different psilocybin gene cluster. So um, all the other ones that have been sequenced have the same psilocybin gene cluster, but that Foliotina, or not the uh, Inosibi, um, has a completely different gene cluster that uh, manufactures psilocybin. And then with the foliotina, those have never been uh, full genome sequenced, so we don't have any insight into the gene cluster in foliotina. But they had a whole lot of biocystin um, compared to the amount of psilocybin um, in some, some recent test results. So it's likely they have something different going on and would be much more likely than other mushrooms to give different effects. Um, and then the gymnopilus have kind of like some cavalacone type things. So those are likely to, to have different effects as well. Interesting. Um, it was a post, I believe, that uh, you you made this one of these last few years, uh, maybe even this year, uh, regarding an anosibi uh, found within the United in the United States, and it was a, a psilocybin containing and poisonous. And I think you utilized uh, a miraculous test. That Felix Bly is behind him. It, it, am I correct? Am I remembering this correct? Almost. Um, so the, the only part that's not correct is that um, there's no poisonous psilocybin containing mushrooms. So the okay. anosibes, uh, a lot of them contain a toxin called uh, muscarin, 
but um, okay. but none of the ones that have muscarin also have psilocybin. So um, mm. yeah, so the psilocybin ones are just uh, hallucinogenic. And this was inosity in Cygnus. Um, so I got samples from Ohio and kind of some other states around there. And yeah, so there's a test called the Miraculix test, which is a color changing reagent. And it gives you a rough percentage of psilocybin. It's, it's accurate to about, within about 10%. And that definitely showed psilocybin in the, uh, in yeah, that inacidy. Understood. And, and that biosynthetic uh, chain, was was that also discovered by Felix Bly? Uh, the the biosynthetic. You talk about the psilocybin gene cluster. I think. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. That was yeah, kind of simultaneously like... discovered by Bryn Dentinger and Jason Slot. Okay. And I think uh, mm -hmm. maybe Bryn posted some of the first, uh, or maybe it was. Uh, well, I think it was also the uh, um, the guys in uh, in Germany, like Dirk Hoffmeister. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. I think he's the first person to actually get something in press uh, about the psilocybin gene cluster. Uh, but those are the three people that are kind of looking into those, those genes. Understood. Wonderful. Well, this has been fantastic, Alan. Uh, I, I think this was good. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think you said some cool stuff. Excellent, excellent. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Yes, it's been a pleasure. This is Sacred Medicinal Insights.